You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars podcast with Nefa Ahoy, a show that shares the stories of successful Africans in business and how they did it. It's our story told our way to inspire our people. This podcast is sponsored by IDS Consultant Ghana Limited, a company dedicated to supporting small and medium-sized enterprises with accounting and business advisory services at an affordable rate. Visit www.idsconsultantga.com to learn more. I'd like to say I was a serious student, but really, <laughs> I wasn't. But I'm saying this also just to encourage, you know, uh, people. You don't necessarily have to be a first-class student or not necessarily <laughs> school all the time. Okay. Stay in school. <laughs> you don't necessarily have to be a first-class student exactly. right, to, to make it in life. Exactly. Um, you know. Hi guys, you're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars and our guest today is a finance and investment professional with extensive experience in real estate development and financing, private equity and venture capital, as well as investment banking. Now he has a very ambitious vision to transform urban development in Ghana. He's currently the CEO of Apollonia City and his name is Bright Owusu Amapa. Hello Bright and welcome to Africa's Business Rockstars. Thank you very much. You're welcome. How are you doing today? Yeah, not too bad. So when we hear Apollonia City, the name that people associate with that is yours, right? But we'd like to actually understand, you know, your growth as a child. Take us through the life of a very young, bright Uswamafa. Sure. I had a very normal life. I don't think it was too different from your average Ghanaian. I grew up in Tema, small family of five. My dad was always a family man. We have extended family, but we're never really sort of introduced to you know, the bigger family, you know, only for instance, my mom comes from Abuasi, you know, okay. as an Ashanti and Matrilinea, but I've only been there once. Born and bred in Tema. I have an older brother and a younger sister uh, who are all in Tema. I moved from Tema only when I got married to Sadia. So I'm married now with a daughter who's almost two years old. She turns two in January. And I think that has been exciting. Maybe, we, you know, throughout the, I mean, some point in the interview, maybe we'll talk about family life as well, but that completely, you know, changes your way of thinking. So these days I'm a daddy as well. And it's, you know, trying to combine family life right. with work life. Right. But as I was saying, I mean, growing up in Tema, I was, yeah, it was exciting. You know, at the time I attended, this is cool called Goshen International. Goshen, that's where I attended. And then from Goshen, I went on to Infantipim School. Okay. After Infantipim, I went to Ken UST, yeah. where I studied physics. So usually, you know, when I, people are a bit surprised about my background because exactly. yeah, I studied physics, but it's, it's completely <laughs> different from real estate. Yeah. Um, so I'll tell you how I got into real estate uh, at some point. Okay. Yeah, other than that, I mean, I'd like to say, you know, I wish there was some other interesting things to talk about, but it was really, <laughs> it was really a normal childhood. Yeah. 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 Normal childhood. But wouldn't you say your childhood upbringing has sort of nurtured you into the person that you currently are? Maybe in one way or the other, you probably didn't realize it because you were young at the time, you know, but maybe the values and all that your folks instilled on you has actually brought you out to be who you are about, right about now. I think now. so. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, to your point. The biggest inspiration in my life is my dad. Okay. You know, my dad was an extremely hardworking person. I mean, at the time, I don't think we had the term, you know, serial entrepreneur, but okay. if, <laughs> if it existed at the time, that's what he would be. Um, he trained as an engineer. Yeah. But like me, you know, he never practiced as an engineer. He was always, you know, trying new opportunities. I'm quite entrepreneurial and I think I, I get that from my dad. You know, he would almost double in a lot of opportunities. You know, he got excited, things like trading. So when I was growing up, I think he used to export 
like local artifacts to Europe. You know, at some point, I think he even went into aviation, you know, went into leasing of aircrafts. Okay. You know, had a real estate business of his own. Serial entrepreneur, I mean. right definition. Yeah. Um, a lot of them, I mean, some of them were successful, others were not. Yeah. But if yeah. you're an entrepreneur, you know that it's, we say in venture capital, you know, typically one out of 10 businesses are the only ones that actually end up being successful. It was definitely um, influential in my life. He taught me to get what you want. You always have to work hard for it. Right. Irrespective of your background or where you're coming from. So I take a lot of inspiration from that. My mom, mm-hmm. on the other hand, has always been a housewife. Yeah. She's extremely funny. Okay. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then people who know me, I don't worry. All right. So I think I get that from my, from my mom, irrespective of what I'm going through. If you'd see me on any day at all, you know, always smiling. Yeah. Um, it's hard to tell when I'm going through very serious issues. So I think I get that from my mom's side. Right. You went to Infantipim, right? Yes, I okay. did. What did you study? Science. Science. Yeah. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, I was always going to study science. Oh, you knew from the get-go? I knew, I knew from the get-go. How's that? I liked mathematics. I've always been very good at math. And of course, you know, again, as a kid, I guess my dad wanted me to become a doctor. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, growing up, I had all these but toys that's, yeah. that doctor said. But I knew, I, you know, at the back of my mind, I knew I wasn't going to become a doctor. But I like science. <laughs> okay. I like mathematics. I like physics. Mm. And so naturally, that's what I was going to do mm. in university as well. Mm. So I guess yeah. it only, exactly, it only made sense that when you went to KNUSD, you studied physics. Yes, it only made sense. But interestingly, it wasn't my first choice, actually. Yeah, I think my first choice was computer engineering. That's okay. what I wanted to do. Um, you know, in our time... Computers were just becoming a new thing. Yeah. Um, I think we called it hardware yeah. at the time. And so I think I couldn't make it into the computer engineering program. Okay. And so I think the second choice was physics because the physics curriculum had been slightly amended to include physics with computing. Yeah. Yeah. And so then that, that was my second choice and I got into it. So that's how come I ended up reading physics. Okay. Before that, you know, I sort of, um, one of my brother's friends who was already in tech, who, you know, I used to consult and I had a good relationship with him. I used to speak to him about career choices and, you know, in terms of what I wanted to do in university. And one of the things that he told me was, obviously, you know, our first degree is always a start. Yes. And then I think physics was also one of the courses where, you know, if if you read it, it really opened up so many other opportunities okay. for you yeah, in terms okay. of, because yeah, I always knew I would go on to do a second degree. Okay. Yeah, I liked studying at the time. <laughs> Not so much these days, but I knew I was always going to do a second degree. So physics for me was the natural start. And right. then, yeah, hopefully... After that, I was going to think about what else to do. Right. Okay. So then from physics to finance at the University of Lincoln. Yes. Worlds apart. Yeah. It's very interesting how I got into finance. Mm. So yeah, maybe when I I probably, this is where I delve into a bit of my um, professional career as well. Okay. So after physics, I used to travel a lot in in KNUST. I mean, I'd like to say I was a serious student, but really not (laughs) I wasn't, but I'm saying this also just to encourage, you know, uh, people, you don't necessarily have to be a first class student or not necessarily school all the time. (laughs) Okay. Stay in school. (laughs) You don't necessarily have to be a first class student to to make it in life, um, you know. Yeah. So as I was saying, physics for me was, was the second choice. I used to travel a lot back in school, you know, for vacation. And then right after I completed, I moved to the UK to live with an uncle of mine in Manchester. And what I said to myself, you know, when I got to the UK was, because everybody around me, you know, a lot of Ghanaians were doing, you know, typical immigrant jobs. jobs. Yeah. Exactly. Typical immigrant jobs, yeah. you know, cleaning here and there. Yeah. You know, the fortunate ones were probably, 
you know, TELUS in like a NASDAQ or Tesco. And that was, you know, almost like, um, you, you were seen to be a bit fortunate if you were doing that. Right. But I said to myself, listen, I wasn't, I wasn't going to do that. And if you've lived in a, particularly in the UK before, and it's quite difficult if you didn't study there. Okay. And you're coming from, you know, Ghana with some funny accent. Yeah. You know? But yeah, it, I mean, it didn't stop me. It didn't stop me. I, I went online. Mm-hmm. I was looking for a professional job. Okay. That's what I did. And then I saw an opportunity. I think it was in one of the Metro the newspapers. It was Barclays was looking for some sales positions. Okay. And then I applied for it. I went for an interview. I think it went well, mm. but I didn't get the job. Okay. Yeah. So I asked for feedback. I ask questions a lot. I'm not afraid. Well, that's one thing about me. I, I ask questions. Okay. I can interact with anybody irrespective of who you are. I don't necessarily want to say authority, but I've never been afraid of anybody. Yeah, okay. So I asked, I mean, why didn't I get the job? And then she said, well, when she asked me a question about whether I've worked in a target-driven environment before, because yeah. it was a sales role. Right. You know, you know what right. sales you are get like. Targets. You get targets. Exactly. Yeah. So this question. was like my first professional. The interview went for, but that was a point where I didn't get the job because okay. I didn't have any experience doing that. I, I said, guess you okay. gave the honest answer. Of I gave an honest answer, exactly. Because, yeah, yeah I, hadn't done it. I, yeah. Didn't, I hadn't done it before. So I went back. But the next day... I went there again. Wow. Yeah, exactly. I went back. <laughs> Next day, I went back. Fortunately for me, it was a different person. <laughs> and actually, it was also through a recruitment agency. So I went back. It was a different person. You know, obviously, those interview questions are always the same. Yeah. Thing that, right? So yeah. a guy asked me, and then guess what? He asked me that same question again. <laughs> yeah, but I thought about it this time around. So again, I gave an honest answer. Which but was? I, I linked it to school. Okay. Where I said that, listen, I, I'm used to working in a target-driven environment. Right. Um, I've just finished my dissertation. Right. And, and obviously, as a student, you've always got assignments. Yes. It's, it's the same thing. It, it's something that's transferable. Yeah. I've just finished that. And I basically converted the conversation and told him about my dissertation. I've done something that was quite unique. Well, my colleague and I had designed a software for automating the KNUC library. Okay. Uh-huh. So okay. I, I spoke, we spoke about that. I told him about the timelines that we had and what have you. So I think, I mean, in the end, he was quite impressed. And then I got the offer. <laughs> Into Barclays, uh, Barclay. I mean, the division was Barclay Card, which okay. handled their, their, okay. their credit card business. Okay. And so, so that is how come that began your working life. That began my working life yeah. exactly. What was and that I'm saying like? this yeah. because I'm, I'll try and link it to the finance later. Because sure. at the time, you know, I didn't. I just finished school. I didn't know. Well, once I didn't know what I wanted to do, I just wasn't sure. I always thought I was going to go into IT mm. or something more. When I say technical, maybe telecom, you know, that sort of thing. But Barclay card is where I really, it was a turning point in my life because I, I started getting interested in finance, okay. you know, and business. That's where the interest was. Okay. So for instance, their corporate head office was in the center of Manchester, was, mm. you know, maybe 20 story building. Mm. And they had an investment banking team on the top floor. Okay. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so you've got the investment banking team, obviously senior management, on the top floor. Yeah. So you get into the office, you know, early in the mornings and then, you know, you'd see, you know, some people park the Ferraris and take the <laughs> lift to the top floor. I mean, yeah. we were on the second floor. Okay. okay. So for me, I was, I felt, okay, you know, at some point, someday. That's where I need that's to where, be. That's where I need to be. I also need to park a Range or a Ferrari and then I also need to get to the top floor. Yeah. So I started developing an interest in, in finance, you know, started reading the Financial Times, okay. um, The Economist, started reading about it. I, had, I didn't know anything about investment banking okay. then. But I started taking a keen interest in investment banking. And I excelled at the job. I think there were 23 of us that were selected. Mm. In the end, they took us through um, six-week training. Mm. And then only three of us made it. 
Oh, wow. You know, yeah, only three of us made it. So I think I worked there for about a year. Okay. And whilst I was doing that, like I said, I knew that I wanted to go into finance yeah. and, you know, investment banking. And so I started looking for schools okay. or a second degree okay. that would help me realize that that dream. And then I also started thinking about other professional courses. Mm. Right? So for me, it was between the CFA program, mm. it's called the Chartered Financial Analyst Program, or a master's degree. But I also knew that I always wanted to come back to Ghana at some point. You know, okay. At the time, you know, you knew how I was like coming back to Ghana with the, the <laughs> master's degree from abroad. So yeah. I opted for the master's degree instead. And then I selected University of Lincoln for, for that specific reason, because the MSc Finance Program, mm. the modules sort of mirrored the modules uh, that the CFA program also had. So okay. I always knew that if I did that and I eventually ended up doing the professional uh, course and yeah. it would be easier yeah. without having to. You yeah. know. So that's why I, I chose University of Lincoln and that's how I ended up in University of Lincoln okay. studying an embassy in finance. Let me just stop you. Yeah. So we finished KNUSD. Yeah. You jumped and straight gone to away. the UK straight away. Straight You're away. like, I'm going to enter the UK and mm-hmm. go and explore this work thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then, because obviously you're building a path. And then yeah. you get interested in finance and then get into the university. You make it sound like really, really, really easy. First of all, university in the UK mm-hmm. includes fees. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a sponsorship or mm-hmm. a scholarship, yeah. it's going to be really difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. Tell us about that. It sounds easy, but it wasn't easy, okay. as I said. The thing about me is I set, I set goals for myself. Mm-hmm. Usually, I mean, I've applied that same principle in every aspect of my life. Okay. I may see something I want. I know I can't afford it. I still commit. Okay. Whatever. I still commit and I end up getting it. So what did you commit to get into uni? Yeah. So I knew that I commit. I knew I wanted to do a master's degree in finance. Yeah. I didn't have the money then. Yeah. I still applied. Okay. Yeah, I still applied and I got in. Right. So that meant that. So, and then at the time I was working. So I did about a year and a half at Barclay Card. Okay. I saved up, but it still wasn't enough. Definitely. Exactly. So I knew that, listen, but I had gotten it anyway yeah. and I have to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. My dad wasn't going to finance that. Right. Nope. I mean, my dad is not a rich guy. He had done his part. Yeah. Know, to be with you. Supported me through first degree. Yeah. Supported me whilst I was away. You know, he never expected anything back from me. So I was on my own. But it helped. I mean, again, to some of your listeners that might be listening to me, I always say, I think the UK was a turning point in my life in the sense that I became very independent. I was like, if I take you back again, the way we were brought up, my dad used to do everything for us. Okay. Can you say I never even paid my school fees? He would come to Kumasi to come in. You know, it was, it was that <laughs> that level. Okay. <laughs> but then this was the first time that I was on my own. You know, it taught me to be independent. Right. Yeah. Right. So you know, I had to take care of myself, and like you're saying, I need. I knew that I needed to raise money for school, and I didn't have that money. Yeah. So anyway, when you know the program started, I resigned from my job and I moved to to Lincoln. Well, before then, I was looking for other job, but I knew that I had to work full time yeah. to be able to raise that money and still yeah. go to school. Yeah. And to do that in the UK, the easiest way is to do security, night security. Okay. Yeah. So throughout my program, I was working as a full time security officer. Wow. Yeah. Fortunately for me, it was a pharmaceutical company. Okay. Yeah, night security. You're basically sitting at a reception, yeah. a bunch of CCTV. Yeah. And that's what you're doing. Yeah. And maybe go around every hour just to make sure you know, everything, everything is fine. But it also gave me an opportunity to study. I was about yeah, to ask how you balance exactly. that with school. Yeah. yeah, it gave me an opportunity to study. Because it wasn't really a lot of physical activity. Yeah. Yeah, it just meant you're staying up at night. You know, every now and then maybe you close your eyes for an hour yeah. or two. <laughs> Everybody did that. <laughs> 
But it was difficult because then the red next morning meant I had to go exactly. to class. Exactly. Know? Yeah. So I did that. That's how I paid my school wow. fees. Yeah. In between, of course, there were always other, some other jobs. jobs. You know? Yeah. yeah to, I think the fee at the time was maybe 15,000 pounds or so. Yeah. But I ended up paying. Yeah. I didn't have any scholarship. No support from your folks at all. No support. You said, I'm going folks. to do this on my own. And I did it. Good job. Exactly. Thanks. <laughs> and I did it. You know, so I said, for me, you said, I said to go for myself. More often than not, I don't know where the money is going to come from. Yeah. But in the end, it always comes one way or another. <laughs> so, Bright, you've worked, you know, done double work, paid for your education. You're done. You've gotten your master's degree in finance. What's next? Investment banking. Hmm. <laughs> so that was the goal. So the first step was education. Yeah. Um, transitioning from physics to finance. Yeah. And so that was part of the reason why I chose an MSc as opposed to, I think a lot of people were doing MBAs at the time. Okay. But I wanted more finance focused course. Okay. So just to have a deeper uh, knowledge and understanding of what finance was all about. Okay. So once that was out of the way, the next goal was investment banking. Unfortunately for me, at the time, it was when I think we were having the first wave of meltdown and global financial crisis. Okay. Lehman Brothers had just you know, gone bankrupt. A number of investment banking institutions were cutting down people. There were a lot of job job cuts. And mm. so I knew there were very little opportunities in the UK. So for me, it was almost a sign to say, well, this is when you need to start looking back home. Okay. So this was almost 10 years ago. And so I started looking for opportunities back home to mm. come to Ghana. I started applying for, for jobs. I got an offer with Data Bank okay. to come back. But I think I came back late. And so when I came, the offer had gone to somebody else. Right. Um, then I looked up, I went around, you know, I must have gone to, if I'm not exaggerating, 10, 10 to 15 companies yeah. that were so local indigenous investment banking firms. And then I got an opportunity at SDC brokerage as, as a financial analyst. But even there, again, they didn't have an opening. Mm. But I said to them, listen, I was prepared to work for next to nothing because those experiences what I needed. Mm. Then because I'd, I left for the UK, as soon as I finished school, I still had to do my national service. Yeah. So I used that yeah. as an opportunity to do my national service. Yeah. You know, at the time, they probably paying me 200 CDs yeah. <laughs> a month, yeah. if I recall. For a graduate who had just come back from the UK, <laughs> it was nothing. But again, the goal was to get the experience, right? relevant experience, industry experience. So that was that's what I said to myself. And the other thing about me is that once I set a goal for myself, mm. you know, mm. I, I don't get distracted. So but I did went, you have any like regrets before you move on? Any regrets in terms of you are ending pounds, mm-hmm. understand? You're working in, I mean, a large corporate, um, mm-hmm. for instance, and then you have to come back home and actually sort of like begin the process all over again. I didn't have any regrets. Okay. At the time... Money wasn't my goal. Okay. It was knowledge. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Knowledge. So I was just looking for where I could really immerse myself and get that knowledge. Right. And then SDC gave me that opportunity. Okay. Very small firm. I think they, you know, one of the oldest investment firms in the country. Most people don't know about it. Mm. They actually, when I got in, realized they financed even data bank mm. before data. Yeah, when data bank was starting. Okay. You know, so it's still a firm. It still exists. Very small boutique, you know, sort of doing their own thing. SDC was a start for okay. me. And as I said, you know, because I apply myself to everything that I do, I work extremely hard. You know, one of my bosses, former bosses who used to work at SDC, he left. And then we'll, I'll link that because that's how come I joined um, Renaissance and now Rendeva. Okay. But after SDC, I joined Blackstar Advisors. Mm-hmm. Blackstar Advisors is a very small boutique private equity and venture capital firm. Um, at the time, I think it had just been set up and we were managing $10 million 
of uh, private equity funds investing in small-scale SMEs mm. in Ghana. Mm. So that was my second of experience in mm. Ghana. So the boss that I work with is called Dela Wusono, and he was well, he has been very instrumental in my life. He moved on from SDC, mm. and he worked with a company called Renaissance Capital. So okay. he told me about the opportunity that had become available within Renaissance Capital. So to take you back a little bit, as I was saying, you know, I'd finished a degree in finance. Right. I was looking for investment banking opportunities in London with a multinational. Yeah. I came to Ghana. Like I said, I, I didn't focus on the money. I focused on knowledge. Yeah. And then within two years, there was an opportunity in a multinational investment bank through Della. Wow. Right. So basically, <laughs> I got the opportunity that I was looking for yeah. even before I came. Yeah. They had a very stringent recruitment process. I must have done eight interviews. Wow. Um, went all the way to Moscow. Yeah. But in the end, I got the job, you know, which is a very, again, a very good experience for me because I spent the first six months in Johannesburg. Mm. Again, bearing in mind, at this stage of my life, it was just knowledge yeah. and yeah. training. That's what yeah. I was interested in. I speak to a lot of young graduates these days and I tell them, listen, when you finish school, the focus shouldn't be about the money. Yeah. It should really be about you know, knowledge and building yourself and your capacity because the money will come yeah, at yeah. a later stage. So yeah. that shouldn't really be the what the, drives the drive. you, exactly the drive. So Renaissance Capital also had a um, what we call a private equity subsidiary. So okay. Dala and I used to run that. We were based in Ghana, but we were doing deals and transactions all across Africa. Mm. That's how my journey, or let's say my Apollonia City journey, started. Yeah, somewhere in 2012. There was a second wave of global financial crisis, mm-hmm. you know. So again, mm-hmm. most investment banks started cutting down, yeah. you know, they started pulling out of emerging markets. Because yeah. Renaissance focused, our focus, our main primary focus was emerging markets. Okay. And so, yeah, Renaissance as a, as a group decided to move out of some of these African businesses that were not very profitable. Yeah. Unfortunately, Ghana was one of them. So I think we closed the Ghana shop in Zambia and I think Kenya. And so Renaissance Capital as an investment bank moved out of Ghana. But Dela and I stayed on because fortunately for us, you know, there were a lot of opportunities within the space that we work, what we call the private equity. Let me take you back a little bit as well. One of the businesses that we invested in was a coffee plantation in Kenya. Okay. The coffee plantation in Kenya had a lot of land, about over 5,000 hectares of land. So I think one of the questions that, you know, the founders or the investors had was, what are we going to do with all this, this land? Yeah. So that's how the land business actually started. Okay. You know, yeah, okay. it was, I'll probably say it was an afterthought. Yeah. The real transaction was really acquiring a coffee producing company that had land. So that's how the land business started. The founder of Renaissance is a gentleman called Stephen Jennings. He's also been, you know, an inspiration in my life. You know, Stephen has a wonderful story. He was also an investment banker at the age of 29. He used to work with Credit Suisse Boston. He was sent on an assignment in Russia. And whilst there, somewhere in the early 90s, you know, Russia was just coming out of communism. And so he, he basically saw an opportunity and he said to himself, I mean, why not set up his own company and start advising the Russian government and yeah. other, you know, private or government ent- enterprises that, that were going through privatization. Okay. So that's how Renaissance was formed. And then within a few years, you know, he grew to become, you know, one of the largest emerging markets, investment banking firms. Mm. You know, and I think for a long time, you know, he was considered as the wealthiest man in New Zealand. Stephen's story has always been a very good inspiration for some of us. Yeah. Now, Stephen is somebody who sees a lot of opportunities. Okay. So, you know, back to the Kenya story. There was one time, the story is when he was driving or he was flying into Nairobi. Okay. He noticed, you know, a lot of 
Airbuns Pro, mm. uh, which is very common in almost every sub-Saharan African country that you pick today. What's common? Poor planning, mm. lack of infrastructure, mm. you know, and a lot of growth, but, you know, just pro with no sort of sense of direction. Yeah. And so I think for him, that's how this whole land business was, was formed. Yeah. yeah, it was formed. Okay. So then we knew what we could do with that land Yeah, that, you know, we had acquired as part of the business. Okay. So the, the whole idea was well, we're going to form up private townships or private cities. Okay. The things that government was not doing or things that government couldn't do. Yeah. We were going to do it as a, you know, as a private organization. Yeah. So that's how the land business started. So the model is really very simple. What we do is you acquire a large piece of land yeah. within a fast-growing city. Ideally, you want the land to be in the direction of growth of the city. And then what do we do? We basically master plan the land and we put in the right infrastructure. Mm. And then we either sell or we do joint ventures or we partner with other people to develop it mm. to become a city. Mm. You know, really, that's the business model for Apollonia as well. Right. And that's how Apollonia was born. And that's how Apollonia was born. Exactly. So obviously from, from Kenya, we applied the same model here in Ghana and we looked for, we did our research. Mm. We found that Accra is growing rapidly, about three and a half to four percent per annum. Mm. There's a lot of, I mean, globally, and especially within Africa, there's a lot of rural urban migration. Yeah. Everybody is moving into yeah. the urban areas for opportunities. But again, what the problem that presents is that because of the pressure on the existing infrastructure and the lack of planning, mm. what happens is that the cities just start to sprawl. Yeah. Right. And new areas are opened. But what happens is there's no infrastructure. Yeah. Right? So people will go into a new area, we'll call it maybe Dodua, start to build and then hope that in 10 years time, government will come in and put the roads and the water and the power yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. But that's our business model. So we would sort of try and leapfrog that, acquire the land, put in the services, the right infrastructure. We plan it properly. Other thing is management. Make mm-hmm. sure you also manage it to maintain the value over time. And then, you know, hopefully, as I said, either sell to individuals or corporates or also do our own development. Mm-hmm. We're very flexible in terms of the structure that we use. So specifically for Apollonia, Apollonia is the name of the development. And I mean, what most people don't know is it's actually the name of the local community as well. Okay. Um, yeah. At the time, even I didn't know there was a community that existed called Apollonia. Okay. You know, when we did our research, we knew exactly where we wanted to site the project. We went in there and spoke to the, you know, the traditional owners of the land. Yeah. So that's, there's a community called Apollonia, a very small community. We did a transaction, we acquired it, but we liked the name. Mm. We also wanted some continuity. And mm. so we basically decided to keep the name Apollonia and added a city to it just mm. to differentiate ourselves. But so that's if, to say, hang on, is that to say at the time when you identified the land, you actually didn't, the owners were just the traditional yes. leaders? Yes. Okay. Exactly. No private individuals. No. Okay. No, it's just two land. Yeah, that was just bare. Wow. And what would have happened is more, was typical with most two lands. Yeah. They would have just sold it exactly. as they normally do. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. But how did you identify the land at OEB? I mean, a case of um, Kenya, mm-hmm. he was flying over Kenya. Were yeah. you flying over, you know, Accra we, and spotted OEB? We, we did that, actually. Okay. Yeah, we did that. Um, <laughs> but we also use, there's a firm in South Africa that is very good at predicting the direction of growth of a city. Wow. They use a bunch of satellites and other technologies. So they can go back maybe 10 years time. And then the satellite imagery will tell them what an area looked like 10 years ago. Okay. What it looks like today. And then they can almost project what it's going to look like over the next 10 to 15 years. Okay. So we did that exercise and we chose a location based on that. So Apollonia is equidistant from Tema 
in Accra. Mm. So the whole idea is to have or create a tri-city concept mm. of Tema, Accra, and Apollonia. Okay. Right? Because Apollonia is within the direction of growth of, of the city anyway. What we want to try and prevent is the status quo. You know, what would typically happen if we didn't do this is that people, the city would just grow in that direction. Yeah. The chiefs would sell the land haphazardly. Yeah. You know, people would just put up everything that they want and realize there's no sort of order. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. So our idea is to, to do the same thing, but this time around plan it properly, put in the right infrastructure as the city grows towards that that node. Okay, so let me let me backtrack a little bit. Mm-hmm. So Renaissance identified this opportunity in Kenya. Yes. Yes. Where was that light bulb moment where you said, or where Renaissance as a company said, hmm, why don't we try this in Ghana? Yes. So I think, you know, if you look at Africa's story, I mean, at our last check, there are about 52 cities in Africa Mm. with populations of over 1 million people. Okay. Right. So, you know, typically what happens in Nairobi, you go into almost every African city and the same, same issues. Sure. Right. So once, you know, Renaissance tried this in Kenya, realized that it was a model that we could replicate, you know, in other parts of Africa. Mm. Obviously, the easiest thing to do was to start from where we had existing offices. Okay. If I take you back, you know, fortunately for us, Renaissance was closing shop in Ghana. Exactly. But you know, myself and Della were here and we just discovered something in Kenya. So the idea was, okay, you guys stay on yeah. and try and replicate that yeah. in Ghana. So that's how... Apollonia started. To date, we have seven projects across Africa now. We're doing the same thing in Zambia. Mm. There are two projects in Nigeria and even DRC as okay. well. Okay. So is it operating still under Renaissance or Renaissance is gone? So Renaissance is now almost metamorphosized into Rendeva. Okay. All right. The Ren is, you know, the Ren just gives you an idea that, you know, it's still Renaissance. Gotcha. Then, but Rendeva, I mean, as the business started to grow, I think we realized that, or the shareholders realized that they really needed to recapitalize the business, you know, and bring in some additional investment mm. because the nature of what we do is, is long-term mm. that requires a lot of patient capital. Yeah. And so Rendeva was recapitalized. Stephen Jennings is still a significant so a large shareholder. Uh, there were some additional shareholders who came in. We have an American shareholder, a Norwegian shareholder, and a British shareholder mm. as well, and a few other minority investors who came in under the platform called Rendeva now. Okay. Right? So Rendeva is almost like a platform that is rolling these projects across Africa. Okay. So that means, does it, is it fair to say actually that then it's been fairly easy for you in terms of investments? Because this is like a really heavily capital investment intensive venture, right? But you have sort of like a mother company mm-hmm. that can support this. So you haven't had to go to investors and say, this is our vision. We want you to buy into it. Has that been the case? Um, yes and no. Okay. Um, so like you're saying, we've been lucky and fortunate to have investors who understand Africa. Mm. Okay. Understand Africa and Africa. have been Africa focused. Mm. And so it was easy to start, as you're saying. But, you know, projects of this nature require investments Along the line, it never stops. You mm. know, as I said, you know, if you take Apollonia, for instance, it's a $250 million project. Okay. So it's almost a continuous process of bringing in additional investments yeah. and which we have done over time. How have we been able to do that? I think it is really setting ourselves up to be bankable. Okay. And what I mean by that is, and again, I'll try and link that to what pertains in our market. Mm. Because that's part of what I do. Mm. You know, I interact a lot with young entrepreneurs. Okay. I invest some of my own money sometimes into small businesses. Right. And one of the challenges that I've identified is that most Ghanaian businesses do not set themselves up to receive investment. Mm. What do I mean by this is they don't put in the processes. Okay. So you could find a very passionate 
entrepreneur, very passionate uh, individual mm. um, who has a very good product. But you ask him about, you know, processes almost non-existent. They're not banking these mm. things properly. They are not documenting, mm. putting any documentation as they go along. So that makes it obviously difficult for an investor to put money into their businesses yeah. or projects. So we did that over time with Apollonia. You made sure you um, had those checks in place. We had those checks in place. Okay. And putting, you know, proper auditors. You know, sometimes I always say going for a big four. I always say big four mm. audit, auditing firm. If mm. you've got a KPMG, mm. PwC, yeah. and Young, they may be expensive, but... If you've got a vision, it means you're basically setting yourself up for investment. The investor comes, they look at your books, they know it's a big four. You know, the kind of scrutiny you get is not the same as what you get from, you know, some five-by-night auditor, right? So that's one of the things that you do. And obviously, as I said, making sure that you have proper corporate governance processes in place. Mm. And then also having a good story. So sometimes what people don't realize behind the scenes of Apollonia is that, you know, there's also a very good story. Mm-hmm. We acquired this land, as I said, what we did strategically was to give the local community a stake in the project. So mm-hmm. they own 10%. What that means is that, you know, they, they're entitled to 10% of all the profits that we make over time mm-hmm. and throughout the lifetime of the project itself. Now, as I was saying, this is a good story. Um, of course, obviously most investors are always looking for returns, mm-hmm. but more importantly, investors are looking for returns and also impact. Yeah. You know, they want to make an impact. Yeah. And here's the story. This is a situation where the local community could have just, you know, basically sold their land off to us. We would have gone on to do our own development, but yeah. they are part of the project over time. And what we want to see is the local community itself also develop together with the project. Okay, Bryce. So let's backtrack a little bit. Yes. We had Renaissance who then left and then came Randeva, who's a real estate development company. But what has been your key role in terms of that transition? Because in between that, you're working as an analyst. Mm-hmm. And now we have analysts to CEO. Take us through that journey. Sure. So as I said, you know, when I joined Renaissance, I was an analyst. But I think, you know, maybe I'll take you back to the point I made about entrepreneurship. Okay. And I think some of the things that I picked for my dad. Because I think a lot of that is what has basically gotten me to where I am today. And it's gotten Rendeva to where we are today. Mm. As I said, it was a new business. You know, we started something in Kenya. It's mm. not as if there was a template. You know, so a lot of the things we've had to make it up, sure. you know, as we as we go along. And that requires being very versatile mm. and almost thinking like an entrepreneur. So, you know, we started the business, Stella and I, uh, we're the only ones who, obviously with some assistance from Rendeva mm. in the group, mm. but throughout the land acquisition process, you know, sometimes people come to site and they wonder how, you know, we're able to acquire all this a huge piece of land. That's a lot of work. And, you know, you and I know some of the issues you go through in mm. trying to buy a single <laughs> plot of land in this country, mm. let alone over 2,000 acres of land. So yeah. that requires a lot of resilience, you know, it requires a lot of creativity and thinking on your feet and just being able to solve problems. Yeah. Again, at, at the time I was an analyst, but my role was almost undefined. Sure. Was, yeah. I was almost doing a bit of everything. Yeah. Just to put this whole thing together. Yeah. To get to the point where... Bearing in mind, we had lined up investment. It doesn't mean that the, we, we had drawn down the funding. Okay. There were certain things that had to be done okay. to be able to draw down the funding for that. And that's really what we did. I'll probably say within the first two, three years. Okay. It's going to get in the acquisition, making sure we're doing extensive due diligence, really understand all the intricacies, you know, the local issues or the stakeholder issues, yeah. planning, the permits, you know. These are all what we call conditions precedent that we had to check before we could even draw down a dollar of funding yeah. for the project. Yeah. 
So, I mean, through all that, you know, we kept growing the team. Uh, it became bigger and bigger. And then uh, at some point, I had to transition from an analyst to a CFO because okay. we needed a CFO. Okay. Basically, we, you know, we needed a CFO, came up with a job description, went out there, and, you know, the investors were like, well, I mean, right, why don't you step into this role? So it was new for me, but... Yeah, I took on the challenge and mm. I stepped into the role. You know, I, I don't think I was fully prepared mm. for that. I mean, I had a, obviously had a finance background then, but the C- CFO also entails having, you know, a deeper understanding of accounting. Yeah. Which is something that I never really did, bearing in mind I was a science student, yeah. you know, I did finance within a year. And so I felt that I needed to just basically go back and get a better understanding of accounting. And right. So, you know, so I basically enrolled on the ACCA program. Okay. Yeah, as part of my role. And then I think that really helped me to excel in, in, in that particular capacity. So I was a CFO for three and a half years, I think. And then at the time, you know, the lab moved on. As I said, the team kept growing. Yeah. And then, you know, there was an opportunity for a CEO as well. So again, I was asked, do you... Why don't you step in and act? And originally, I was just acting as a CEO for a few months. And then later on, my position became permanent. And so I've been a CEO for, I think, the last three years now. The team has really grown from two people mm. <laughs> uh, to about 25, yeah. 25 to 30 core staff. And then another 50 non-core staff. Were you nearly. involved in that growth in terms of recruitment of people? The 25 permanent staff, 15 mm-hmm. permanent staff, like throughout that whole process. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely part of the, throughout the whole process. Okay. Um, yeah, we've had to hire engineers okay. know, because once we started executing, we needed technical people. Yeah. And so we've got engineers, we've got, a, you know, um, civil engineers, we've got an electrical engineer on okay. the electrical side, marketing people because when you start marketing and sales. Yeah. So when yeah. we started selling, we definitely needed to grow the marketing and sales department. Yeah. And then legal, because right? mm. a lot of our work also involves a lot of legal mm. work. So we have a legal department. And then I think, what else am I missing? <laughs> yeah, I think I've basically covered most of the core yeah. the core stuff that we have. Obviously, you know, you still have your ad, uh, admin, yeah. admin yeah. people, but those are, that's the, those are the core stuff. That how, did you, how do you identify these individuals? Because like you said, it was just two individuals, mm-hmm. yourself and Della, starting yeah. this out. And you have to grow a team. Yeah. Yes. So how do you identify that this is the kind of person I want, this is the right person for the job, etc.? We had some support from a group. When I say group, I mean uh, Rendeva, which okay. is the um, you know, parent company. Okay. But in fact, yeah, what, so there was an HR at group level. Okay. Um, so when we identified a need, you know, we basically sat down with HR and we come up with a job description, yeah. the JD. Yeah. And then we basically go out there and look for that individual. Okay. But I think over time, we've come to realize that, because I do a lot of, recruitment. Okay. I believe in if you're looking for, especially if the person is going to report to me directly, mm. I go out there and look for those people myself. Mm. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. I spend a lot of time talking to people for mm. referrals. Yeah, because I mean, in our markets, I think referrals really work. Yeah. Um, so I mean, that's how we look for our people. I don't really believe in using recruitment companies or okay. putting out adverts where you get, you know, yeah, tons, of... And tons of people. Yeah, because normally I believe you should know exactly what you're looking out for. I go and then I look for exactly the kind of person that we want. All right, right. So now you're firm CEO of um, Apollonia City. Yeah. And it's a, well, it provides residential apartments or residential housing Mm -hmm. um, opportunities for people to actually buy homes, businesses to set up. You know, who is the actual target market for Apollonia City? So Apollonia City is really a 
what we call uh, mixed income, mixed use development. Okay. If you recall, I was saying, well, what we're really, really trying to develop is a new city or a yeah. new community on the outskirts of Accra. And what that means is that it is for everybody, right? And you can't have a city for just wealthy people mm. or a city for just poor people. It's yeah. basically various income groups, which is why we have various types of products that would, you know, match everybody's budget. Right. Right. So when it's all said and done, we're looking to develop about 25,000 residential units, okay. you know, various types from affordable all the way to high end. We also have products for companies that want to set up, you know, so we have a light industrial park and we do have opportunities for recreational. So there's a transaction we're working on now for an amusement park. Okay. We're also looking to attract hotels. We've already signed up some schools. There's a school under construction, mm. uh, discussions ongoing with several school operators and in the commercial aspect as well in the CBD area. So mm. we are we are just on the verge of, of, of making an announcement where we're developing a new corporate head office, which will be on site. We're hoping okay. to move in, in there by the first quarter of 2021. Right. A short answer to your question is it's for everybody. To everybody. Okay. Yes, so everybody. we have a lot of people who are listening in and mm-hmm. Apollonia sounds like the... Well, especially to me, like the dream place, you understand? Sure, the sure. place I would actually like to live and sure. own a house. Exactly. But I'm here and I'm thinking, I don't think I can afford this. Right. No, this is something that, as you can imagine, we get all the time. The The question of affordability has yeah. always been very relative. Yeah. You know, but for me, more importantly, I think as a nation, what we should be addressing is the financing. Mm. And here's what I mean. I mean, if you go to London, I mean, London properties are not cheap, but... What makes it easier for your average Londoner or people in the UK or in the US to buy properties, access to financing? Yeah. So you can get very long-term mortgages at 3% per mm. annum mm. where you're paying over, over a long period. Mm. Okay. So then it's really not a question about the price of the property, but right. it's how people pay. Right. So I get this all the time. For instance, So again, if, if we could offer products where people are paying, you know, depending on your salary level, yeah. people are paying... Yeah bits over time, yeah. then the question about affordability or the price points will really not come in. And so this is this is an area that we've identified and we think, you know, we really need to address that. Okay. And we're thinking through innovative ways of coming up with what basically flexible payment plans. Okay. Okay. Payment plans. Okay. The nature of our products is, I always say to people, you know, if you want to buy cheap land, you know, you can always go into OEB or Dodoa to buy mm. cheap land. Mm. But often than not, most people forget that you're buying the land cheap. Mm. All right. You may pay, you know, let's call it 20, 25,000 CDs. Mm. And then you spend another couple of thousands, you know, trying to bring a borehole, yeah. dig a borehole, yeah. buy electricity poles. Yep. Fix the roads. The road, fix the roads. <laughs> you know, you have to drive on, on tarred roads, yeah. terrible roads. I mean, how much do you spend trying to service your car? Yeah. You know, so if you factor all these things in, you know, it's really what you're getting from Apollonia. It's right. you know, the right. infrastructure, right. the security, the ambience. And then also within close proximity of amenities yeah. that come with the plot that you're buying. So really what I tell people is in as much as we sell plots, what you're buying is, is more of an environment Got it. than just the plot. You understand? So the issue of affordability, I think, is the financing and it's something that we're thinking through to see how best we can come up with flexible payment plans for That's our, our clients. Seems like it's been a very smooth journey. I don't think it's been a very smooth journey. Mm. But as I said, you know, we've learned to personally, I've learned to be very resilient mm. and also just to take things one day at a time. The good thing is, you know, we've been fortunate to have investors that are very long-term in their thinking. Okay. And the project is also very long-term. And so we think 
20, 25 years, we don't think very short term. Okay. So for us, any short term challenge is just, it's just a challenge. Yeah. You know, which we, we know that we will definitely be able to overcome that. And we always focus on the end goal. The end goal. Yeah. Exactly. Was that one time where you said to yourself, I don't think I can do this anymore? Probably lost like a big investor's deal or there was this major challenge and you just said, you know what? This dream of mine, this ambitious vision of mine, I'm not too sure. I don't think I've ever said that, okay. frankly. But we have had our own sort of, you know, challenges, a number yeah. of projects that, you know, never materialized. Mm. This year, for instance, we came into the year with signed term sheets. Okay. You know, we had the um, largest um, education group in South Africa that was going to put up a private high-end boarding school. Okay. And that still hasn't materialized. We were hoping to close that. But there's so many factors, yeah. you know mainly external that we have very little control over. But as I said, it's really just remaining focused and, you know, on your vision and staying true to, you know, not necessarily. Sometimes the danger is to change strategy and to change things in the short term when things are not going your way. Exactly. It's just making sure that you you stick to, you know, your goal and you stick to what you set yourself because, I mean, you you always get those challenges that that try to derail you. Yeah. Yeah, I always say just, you know, don't let it derail you. Yeah, and then just stay true to yourself. Yeah. yeah. You see yourself doing this for the rest of your life? Definitely. Mm. Definitely. Yeah, I think I enjoy what I do, you know, transition from an investment banker to a developer now. Mm. Real estate is is more interesting because it's tangible. As an investment banker, you're really structuring deals, you're advising. Mm. But here, for me, it's something that is tangible. It's something that, you know, I've seen grow from just bush to... Yeah. A city. Yeah. Right? For me, it's, it's a legacy, something that we can always point to and say, this is what Bright and his team did. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I really look forward to that. What has, in your opinion, what has success looked like for you in Apollonia City? I think success has really been the joy of seeing the dream come into fruition. Mm. You know, so, I was saying to you, the good thing about real estate is that most of the things that we do is actually tangible. Right. So, you can see a situation whereby you just had bare land, which is bush. Mm-hmm now transforming and becoming, you know, a city. So for me, that is success. But as I said, bear in mind, this for us is a very long-term project. Yeah. We've only just started. This is just the beginning for us. You know, and obviously, you know, we have received some recognition. Yes. But yes. for me, yes. that's just the way I see it. It's more of recognition for what we've done to date. Mm. Um, and for me, a lot of that also, you know, credit goes to the team that I have. Mm. We have a very good team that mm. I work with. We had a lot of support who buy into the vision. I think mm. it's very important to have a team that buys into the vision. And one thing I always say in the office is we, you have to be extremely versatile. Mm. Right? So we like to hire people who are not just subject matter experts, but mm. versatile. That really helps. So if you understand what your colleague, the nature of your colleagues work, it makes you a little bit more considerate when you're dealing with that sort of person. And right. then also, you know, for me, it, makes, it helps for better cohesion yeah. as a team. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it's important to um, mention, especially for the education and knowledge of our listeners, that you've actually been able to achieve a lot of this at another age of 40. I mean, I don't think it's been any mean feat. It's not something that we should, you know, belittle. <laughs> so like you mentioned, you've received recognition, tons of awards and ranging from Best Mixed Use Development in Africa at the 2019 Africa Poverty Investment Awards, Most Promising Company of the Year at the 2018 Ghana Business Awards, Outstanding Property and Real Estate Development Entrepreneur of the Year, and of course the Forty Under Forty Awards. It goes to guess, it goes to attest, you know, 
to the good work that you're doing as an individual and in a company um, as a whole. So kudos to you and your team. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> but as that. I said, for me, yeah. it's, it's a team effort. Uh, yeah. I'm very fortunate to work with you know a team that really understands what we're trying to do. Mm. They work extremely hard. My style, you know, my leadership style is to lead from the front. Okay. So everybody knows that I work extremely hard. I always mm. say, you can't really come to me and complain about workload. Mm. I work harder than everybody else in the office. <laughs> yeah, it's like usually the last person to leave. When I wake up, I'm sending emails at 3, 4 a.m. Right. All right. So it's just the kind of work ethic that I have and I try to instill it in my people as well. Right. So right. kudos to, thank you very much, but kudos to the rest of the team. It's not, it's not just me. Right. Right. All right. Right. So finally, well, sort of, on Africa's Business Rockstars, we have what we call the Rockstars quote. And this is basically what spurs you on as an individual. Yeah. So what would be your rockstar quote? My rockstar quote will be, there is more sleep after death. Mm. And I say this, what I mean by this is that I believe in, I believe the hard work pays. You know, if you look at what I've been through, if you look at the, you know, my career trajectory, I believe I've had to work extremely hard, you know, right after school. Mm. As I said, when I became independent, um, it taught me to work hard to man, look after myself and also to achieve my goals. And yeah. so that is something that I've carried with me throughout my life. It's become a part of me. One may say I'm maybe a borderline workaholic, yeah. but <laughs> you know, as I said, I believe that once I die and I can sleep as much, as long as I want. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Until then, you know, just keeping focused and, and, and not losing sight of where I'm trying to get to where we're trying to get to and mm. just working extremely hard for me. I believe hard work really pays. That's my mantra. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. So you've been listening to Africa's Business Rockstars and our guest today has been Bright Owusu Amofa, who is the CEO of Apollonia City. Bright, thank you so much for spending time with us today on Africa's Business Rockstars. Thank you very much for having me. Thank yeah, you. welcome. So if you like this episode, remember to follow us on our social media handles at Africa's Business Rockstars on both Instagram and Facebook. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye.